Welcome to the Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. I'm Chad. I'm Charlotte. And today we're talking about hell, y'all. Yeah! <laughs> this is going to be a very uplifting episode. Well, it will be. I, I think, think you so. and I are going to end up in a very hopeful place here. But I hope so. Okay. So, as I'm sure most people know, there has been a set idea of what hell is, at least in general parameters, for a good many centuries. And it's something along the lines of uh, eternal torment of some mm-hmm. kind. That's a doctrine that has some historical basis, obviously. But I would say that the scriptures are a lot more ambiguous about not just hell, but the afterlife in general. I mean, you know, as we talked about last week, you can see clear development in the concept of the afterlife in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. In the Old Testament, everybody goes to the same place, Sheol. Mm-hmm. It's not heaven, it's not hell, it's just where you go when you die. Um, the reward or punishment for how you live is tied to the people and the land. And it pretty much is that way up till the exile. At some point after the exile, they start developing a more robust conception of the, the afterlife. And that's kind of a, another topic as to why they might have started rethinking all that after the exile. But during this intertestamental period between the two testaments, they begin to develop a more robust concept of the afterlife. You especially see it in the book of Enoch. But by the time you get to Jesus and the New Testament, there's a more, you know, not only is there a heaven and a hell, but it's connected with how you live in this life. Mm -hmm. That being said, even the New Testament is ambiguous as to what exactly hell is and its duration. It kind of depends. It depends on what book you're reading. I mean, if we only had the book of Matthew and the book of Revelations, or Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one is a one is a handbook for horror movies, and the other one is a piece of scripture. <laughs> right. If those were the only two books we have, the idea of hell being eternal conscious torment would make sense, because a lot of the language comes from those two books, and some from Mark and Luke. If all we had was the Gospel of John, we'd have no idea what happens to anybody except believers. Believers have eternal life. It's virtually silent on what happens to anybody else in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, if, if, or if you just read uh, the Petrine epistles, Second Peter, in Second Peter, there's so much destruction language. If that's all you're reading, you would come away with the conclusion that those who don't go to the divine presence are simply annihilated. Uh, The ungodly are destroyed. Right. Um, Except for in that same book, we're also told that God's desire is that none should perish. So that also kind of throws, what does that mean? And I'd like to return to that. Paul's letters really, they at least can be read through a lens of universal reconciliation. Right. Um, 
take Paul's argument in Romans. His basic argument is that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, you're saved by grace, not by works. And then he ends that letter by saying, God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that God might be merciful to all. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have language in 1 Corinthians where um, Christ, all the enemies of Christ are being put under Christ's feet until he delivers everything to God so that God is all in all. All things are reconciled in Colossians. All things are reconciled to God through Christ. Everything in heaven, everything on earth. So if all we had was Paul, it it wouldn't be surprising if we were all into universal reconciliation. So there's this ambiguity in the scriptures in general and even in the New Testament. And we don't have to get into this now, but I think in the early church, you see the same ambiguity. Um, There are certainly folks who believe hell is an eternal state of torment, but there are others who believe hell is cathartic and redemptive. Right. And that ultimately God will be all in all. And it's not just one or two people. It's a whole school. The whole Alexandrian school holds that position. Right. But, But just to show how ambiguous it was in the early church, think of the four Cappadocians, right? Uh, Macrina the Younger, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus. And Macrina and the two Gregories, I'm sorry, Macrina, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil are siblings. They're all friends and they're all staunch defenders of orthodoxy and the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And yet these three disagree over hell. Gregory of I'm sorry, Basil the Great is like, hell's eternal. Once you die, that's it. You're stuck if, you, if you're not with Christ. Gregory of Nazianzus sits on the fence. He's kind of like, mm, not sure. And then Gregory of Nyssa and Macrina are defenders of universal uh, reconciliation. But ultimately, um, all things are reconciled to God, even though you might be in hell for a long time before that happens. <laughs> But uh, widely different. So the early church reflects the ambiguity of the scriptures. By the time we start getting to Augustine, you know, Augustine says in the in, in Chiridion, he says, there are indeed very many during his own time that reject eternal uh, torment. But at some point, you know, that becomes the doctrine. What do you think? What are your thoughts, Charlotte? I, you know, listening to you talk about the Cappadocians and you know these people who knew each other intimately work together. I mean, as mm-hmm. far as sharing ideas with each other, like the best little think tank we've ever had, course, right? Um, but thinking about you know Basil kind of sticking out with um, this this belief and just it's going to be real bad <laughs> you guys yeah. for that yeah. and then thinking about like his work the way in which his work differed from the other three i'd say was you know all that work that he did with the poor and the sick you know it basically invented the concept of a hospital you know and um mm-hmm. and all of that preaching that we've mentioned before of condemnation of these these huge 
financial inequities, people being sold into slavery to be able to afford food for their families, just these horrible Mm -hmm. things that are happening. And wondering how much of that belief could be behind that with just there are awful, awful people taking advantage of other people uh, in a Uh way of him being in the thick of it to wonder there's got to be there's got to be a real help for these people who are hurting my people, um, you know, in a way that the other three wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to either, that he's also our kind of real social justice guy. I want to say hell is a horrible place. So you don't yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel I feel like maybe Basil has encountered people that he'd very much like to see in hell for all eternity and the others. Okay. I don't know. I'll probably get rid of all that. No, I think I get the point you're saying. He's like, he sees these horrible things and like, there's no way these people are causing this. I think he's actually encountering people that he believes are beyond redemption in some way that the other three are not just because of their work. I mean, and because those are issues that are so important to him in the rest of his writings in a way that we don't see in the work of the other three either. I mean, it's more, if you're just reading Gregory of Nazianzus or even Nyssa, I mean, it's, the theology seems more abstract. Yeah, they worked and they lived among people, but um, Basil okay. is worked up about like actual cruel injustices that he's seeing around him and the people who are perpetrating those things. Um, And so the people, when his people are dying of a famine that during which others are holding grain supplies to increase, to make even more money off of them, I believe he thinks those people are going to go to hell and have to, you know, that that's a more urgent kind of cry there. That's what I'm, I'm saying, I guess what I'm saying is all of our theology is done in some context, right? And, and that I can understand how his would, would affect that in a way that, and then he's a very careful thinker. I don't mean to just say that, but that, that would allow him to um to hold a more let's say extreme position than the others in his friend circle that's interesting (laughs) so maybe we should talk about just the word hell because number one it's not in the bible Mm. (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's a that's a pretty Important point. Um, there's basically four words being translated hell in the Bible. Um, I'm sorry. Let me back up. By the King James Version. Uh, most translations these days are going to translate. Uh, they might translate Gehenna as hell, but usually, well, I don't even know about that. Well, we'll even increasingly are seeing just transliterations, right? If it's Sheol, we see Sheol. If it's Gehenna, we see Gehenna. Right. Um, Hades sometimes, yes and no. You know, so, yeah. So here are the four words. And here's what the King James translates, hell. We'll just begin there. First, Sheol, which is the Old Testament word for where everybody goes. The second word translated in the King James as hell is Hades, which is Greek. It means basically unseen place. 
but it's the Greek Sheol, essentially. I mean, for most of the time of ancient Greek thought, it had the same function. Everybody went to Hades. Now, eventually it developed kind of like everybody else did with a more robust good people, bad people kind of situation. Yeah, and that I um, think even starts more, both of those as kind of just the grave, I think, before it even gets to shadowy place or whatnot. I mean, it's just yeah you're where the dead are in a kind of literal way right mm-hmm. take me down to the grave um and then yeah becomes this amorphous something state of, of death yeah so the king james translates both sheol and hades as hell there's a couple of places in the new testament that might make sense but in most places neither one of those words should be translated as hell if by hell we're thinking eternal torment. Let me mm. just throw that out. There. Mm-hmm. Um, the third word is Gehenna, uh, the Valley of Hinnom, which is an, has some interesting canonical references. Um, it was a place of either child sacrifice or some ritual that had to do with children. You find it in Second uh, Kings, Jeremiah, but they would talk about the children passing through the fire, um, perhaps child sacrifice, but definitely frowned upon by the prophets or by the Lord through the prophets. Um, and so that eventually becomes a place of punishment where the dead go, um, if you've earned it. Um, and you see these shifts in, in the book of Enoch. I mean, part of what I want, want to point out is the book of Enoch is informing a lot of the New Testament language of how they understood in that Jewish context, Gehenna as, you know, fire and hell and punishment. So that's obviously developing before the New Testament writers or before Jesus even. Um, But it looks like whatever's influencing that, it also influenced uh, the book of Enoch when it was written prior. Then there's Tatars, which I think only shows one up one place in the New Testament, and it's a Greek place of punishment. So all four of those words in the past have been translated as hell. Also, in what's what is the trash heap outside of Jerusalem? That's Gehenna as well. Okay. At some point, it becomes a trash heap. So it was the place of running the children through the fire and then eventually became, I'm sorry. Okay. So it has some older, (laughs) something bad happened there or used Mm -hmm. to happen there. Right. And Mm -hmm. and it's alluded to in these other texts, as you say, um, maybe child sacrifice or something else going on. And, and, and let's just say it's so bad, whatever Mm -hmm. it was that scripture is not clear on it, that they did say, let us remember this terrible things that happen here, right? But they're alluding to it. So it starts as that. And then it seems to be this area outside of Jerusalem that where trash is being burned and is also the out, the outside where we have um, lepers and other outcasts are being sent to, in that area anyway. I mean, it's just, it's just an all around, not a great place. You don't want to be anywhere yeah. in there, right? I mean, if you die in poverty, that's where you end up. Sure. Okay. But we haven't gotten yet to any to to anything explicit about these being 
places of eternal damn conscious damnation yet, have we? No, that's really in the language and context in which they're used in you know, Matthew and the Synoptics. So there's different phrases, eternal punishment. Uh, we'll have to talk about that word eternal, but lake of fire in Revelation. Um, and it says in there, Revelation 2010, that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are tormented there forever. Um, in Matthew, it's referred to, uh, Gehenna is referred to as a furnace of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm-hmm. It's referred to in the rich man and Lazarus parable. It's referred to as eternal fire, only mm-hmm. is pure. Um, eternal punishment. Uh, Matthew Gehenna is referred to as hell of fire, and that comes out of the book of Enoch, or at least it shows up there. So yeah, those are kind of the uh, main. An interesting statement in Matthew about Gehenna is Jesus refers to it as the place where body and soul can be destroyed. That's wild. That is too wild. (laughs) That's Now you've gone crazy, buddy. I know. No, I was wondering. It's not just the body. It's not torment. It's destruction. I'd say I don't, I, 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 I'm not supposed to know what that could mean, am I? I mean, but what could that possibly mean? I've, because that means I'm in, why, why am I assuming this is happening to me? Well, it means that <laughs> those, those who end up there are in some kind of corporal form through which they can experience bodily pain. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, not just from that one statement. I mean, oh, if I you know. take, yeah. No, go ahead, please. No, I mean, it just depends on where we're looking. But yeah, I think the idea is you're consciously experiencing this torment, which you would assume would need some body to feel it. Well, I don't know, mental torment, emotional torment. I mean, how literal, how literally do we take, for instance, the notion of fire, or is it referring to something that's horrific, but not necessarily physical? I mean, you know, Augustine, I believe, thought it was a physical experience, that mm-hmm. it was a bodily experience, right? Yeah, but a disembodied bodily experience. But no, I mean, I wonder, I mean, are we supposed to have something like phantom pains? Like it wouldn't matter if we didn't have a body, we would still feel physical torment. Uh, It's just a very strange, it's a very strange thing. I can't, I can't conceive of it. No, I can't Of it both not existing within the material world and yet um, having some kind of body that could be punished. Right. Yeah. Um, And so I know, for instance, Gregory of Nyssa at one point says that we should take these as allegory for horrific experience. But then he says right behind that, but for those who take the opposite position, that is for those who believe it's a physical experience of torment, there's no reason to argue about it. Because obviously he had close friends who disagreed. Mm-hmm. 
uh, or a brother, I guess I should say. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that's part of it. How we conceptualize it is going to depend on how literally we take the notion of fire. Is it physical torment or somehow spiritual torment, mental, emotional? I don't know. So who's, who's know. in charge of hell? God, not the <laughs> devil. <laughs> I'm just leading you into the obvious because. God is the official tormentor. So God is present in hell. Yeah, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. So the devil is being tortured in hell. The devil's not <laughs> running around torturing people. In that kind of what you're getting. Yeah, I think saying. so. <laughs> he didn't get a job that sucked. <laughs> Even in Dante, hell is completely different than that conception. Yeah. Because the lower you go, the more solid things get. When you get to hell where Satan is, Satan is frozen. He's so, so, so unspiritual. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think we have a lot of conceptions of hell that certainly aren't in the scriptures. Let's look. Uh, you brought up the Matthew 25 passage. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's where we have this separate separation of the sheep from the goats yeah and then you have jesus telling the goats i guess uh depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels mm -hmm. you know, for i was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat etc 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 can that fire be eternal without the people being in it eternally I mean, can those be different concepts or are we trying to read around something? Can we just talk about that word eternal for a second? Yeah, let's. I, I'm with you. All right, first of all, there's only one eternal entity, i.e. God, right? If by mm -hmm. eternal we mean having no beginning, no end, not constrained by time. So if hell's eternal, now we have two eternal things in in reality, God, and then some other thing that's eternal. So everlasting would probably be a more appropriate, unless the eternity of hell is because your existence in a more direct presence of God is hellish because of yeah. who you are in relation to that. Then I think it makes sense to talk about hell or heaven as being eternal. Does that make right. sense? Yes, that does make sense. So now we're talking, we're conceiving more of heaven and hell as being states of being, right? And the right. the almost the reaction that we are having within the presence of God. So for believers, that's beatific and there's nothing more wonderful, right? And for others, that is painful and a cause for you know, uh, repentance and shame, et cetera. Um, is a violence even. Right. There is a quote by Gregory of Nyssa that kind of captures the idea. He says, divine judgment, hell, operates only by separating good from evil and pulling the soul towards the fellowship of the blessed. It is a tearing apart of what has grown together, which brings pain to the one who is being pulled. So the idea is you enter into a more direct presence of God and th that those aspects of you that are not fit for that presence 
um, in a cathartic manner, you're being purified from, you know, just imagine what it would be like entering into the presence of God, unmitigated, pure love, goodness, beauty, truth, and nothing, most of what constitutes you is so opposed to that, um, that it would be excruciating. And then to go through the, assuming it's cathartic, to go through that process is going to be painful. And at the end of it, most of who I think I am is an illusion. It's nothing. It has mm -hmm. nothing to do with God. Mm -hmm. That would be horrific to realize I am an illusion. But, you know, the, what I don't think happens, God is not going to destroy the good that God has created, period. Right. Uh, but, yeah, that's kind of how I imagine hell. It's not so much a particular place as it is an experience in relation to a more direct, you know, in this world, God is hidden in a very true sense, but to have a more direct experience of God, um, that's where, if we're not prepared for that, if, you know, we haven't embraced love and that kind of stuff to some degree, I don't know. Let's, let's work some more with um, Nissa's conception here of hell as a, a refining fire maybe right. in front of the presence of God. Right. And he, and I think origin too use the kind of imagery of refining gold or metals, et cetera, that mm -hmm. the impurities are burned away. And they're not just talking about, let's say the worst part of our character mm -hmm. and whatnot, but um, our corruptibility. I mean, there are other things that are burnt away from us because they are also uh, improper or I don't know, cannot exist in the face of God. Right. Yeah. Um, and in that way, it's part of this continued process of apotheosis or sanct sanctification really mm -hmm. too. Um, so in that conception, I mean, hell is a very real thing. It's a very mm -hmm. real state. It's a, I think it maintains a threatening quality, right? We haven't lost that, um, but it's not an eternal punishment. I mean, those things will be stripped away with the hope that then you are fit, you are prepared to be in the presence of God, right? And you want it. Yeah. That's, you know, for... They're they as you know they place a, lo a lot of emphasis on free will. So what's happening in that cathartic process as you're being purified, you're wanting uh, to be with God. You're wanting the goodness, the love. So yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, bat baptism. Origin calls hell a baptism of fire. The idea being either you're baptized in this world by water and you're in Christ and you're already being. Conform to the image of Christ, or you're baptized by the fire. You know, this is a thing. It, in the New Testament, it refers to, um, how's it put, uh, that, that hell is a consuming fire. Well, you have that same language for God. God is a consuming fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know. I mean, let's just, I just want to reiterate because I think, I mean, our, most of the people who listen are, of course, Western Protestants, I'd say, mm -hmm. 
and this idea of ideas from the Greek church seem ancient and foreign mm -hmm. in some ways, but rather than say that's a a giant swath of Christianity, particularly historically, um, that we're just alienated from in different ways. Uh, but mm -hmm. this may be the first time some folks are hearing about a major strand that's saying, no, there's there are opportunities for repentance in an afterlife, that there's no final final here, which I think is real. I think this Greek thought is really appealing to me for several mm -hmm. reasons. I'm going to reject an eternal conscious damnation. I think it's just like the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? I was a finite mm -hmm. being. What? Come on now. Um, yeah. I also don't believe that God creates things to be thrown away, to be destroyed. Right. Uh, and, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning, there's just that whole slew of scriptures saying what it is that God desires and mm -hmm. what God desires God will do. So if God desires the redemption of all things. Why would I question that? But I believe that this takes, you know, hell seriously, takes consequence seriously. Yeah. Um, but protects and maintains the goodness of God, which I think gets really slandered in the Latin uh -huh. church. And I don't think that's a good way to do evangelism either. We keep, you know, I mean, hellfire and brimstone, like come and love this God or else he will kill you forever. It, kill I mean, you forever. It's just like the most abusive invitation. Yeah. Why would you do that? Like, yeah. no, thank you. How can this thing be trusted? Yeah. And these early church folks, one of the reasons they reject the, uh, eternal conscious torment line of thinking is because they think punitive punishment is not fitting to the character of God, whereas uh, cathartic healing punishment mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that they're assuming all of humanity is creating, created in the divine image. The whole purpose of life is to grow into the fullness of that of that image, you know. And so we're either if if that's not the case, then we either have a God who is a tyrant, or we have a God who is incapable. In my mind, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I can't get a get along with the conscious uh, eternal conscious torment. Number one, I don't. I think the scriptures are more ambiguous than that. And I think it, it just, like you say, it slanders the character of God. I mean, is God not able to finish the job or what? What's going right. On? I'm right. The same being who went to the, to the links and the dangers of the incarnation and death itself decided, oh, there's just some folks we're going to have to leave behind for all eternity. That right. doesn't, that doesn't seem in character, like you say. And they're not getting rid of hell. It can still be something you definitely want to avoid. So, yeah, I don't know. My personal belief is that God is more than capable to reconcile all things. What I wish the church would have done or would do is just be agnostic. Just say, look, the scriptures are ambiguous and we're not in a position to make that judgment. Certainly don't go around saying there are whole classes of people, those who've never heard, who are going to experience eternal torment. Why? Because... They didn't accept a Christ they didn't hear about. Right. That's crazy. Come on. Right. 
Right. I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but to me, the New Testament scriptures are virtually silent on what happens to those who've never heard the gospel. I think maybe I'm wrong. No, I agree too. But I mean, just because it doesn't seem to be a question it's interested in. You know, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of questions that we ask in the Bible. It doesn't seem to be interested in. Right. You know, I mean, I think what you can take, at least even the strongest kind of proclamations of being thrown, you know, into the into the outer darkness or into the fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and these things is like, it's serious, y'all, right. like whatever it is. And that we see those proclamations in the gospel Again, what are the issues around it that Jesus uh, threatens people with hell? It's almost, it's every time that Jesus is talking about a parable or an encounter with a rich person, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, people who are, who are squandering, you know, food, et cetera, um, but who are, who are not caring, caring for the poor, who are not mm-hmm. caring for the sick, or not caring for the widows and the orphans. But it's it's people who are in violation in some way of the commandment to love their neighbors. And almost <laughs> always religious people. They're yeah, the yeah. religious leadership. Yeah. I mean, why we don't catch that point? I don't, I don't know. Who's the brood of vipers? It's a bunch of religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hypocrites. It's people who should definitely know better and who aren't. Right. right? So again, yeah, back to your point of it's not talking about the folks who haven't heard the gospel yet. We're not, we're not there. The tradition can develop something around it, but Jesus is talking to the people who you ought to know, and you, you ought to have known for thousands of years. It's all in your scriptures. I gave you that too. You don't know. You're not doing it. Woe to you. Um, So, you know, often when we're in kind of a theological debate, you and I aren't in a debate, but we're wrestling with these questions and trying to flush them out. I think an important thing to ask is kind of what's at stake, right? Mm -hmm. So what's at stake with a belief like we see in American Protestantism, particularly evangelical circles, what's at stake in a strong, maintaining a strong belief in an eternal conscious damnation? Mm-hmm. What are they think? What do you think they think they're protecting? I mean, the language I hear around it are things about kind of you know God's honor, God's judgment. We're pulling all that up again, you know, like mm-hmm. um, that God demands you know, righteousness in this weird penal system, as opposed to like we just said with the Greek system. It doesn't seem to be within God's character there, but seems mm-hmm. to have this really strong notion that God is this. Uh, is judge, jury, and executioner mm-hmm. in the West. I think it secures, one thing it does is secure exclusivity. Mm. We have the answer. This is the only answer. And if you don't buy this answer, you're going to suffer eternal conscious torment. Mm-hmm. I think for a long time, that was probably very compelling for people. It is compelling if you believe it. Sure. Sure, because then it privileges me, right? Oh, I've, mm-hmm. I'm the one who's got it right and everybody else has it wrong and that makes me superior, literally. What are, so re, what's the reverse of that question? What do they lose if they embrace 
instead of a punitive punishment, uh, uh, cathartic punishment that may last an eon. <laughs> uh, but still, ultimately, God is able to be all, all, all in all. What do they lose if they embrace that? Or we? I mean, what's lost? I, I don't think anything. I think a lot more is gained. I think so. I mean, I think so too, but I think that would force uh, those folks to also then reevaluate their understanding of our uh, worldly penal and judicial system, which is, is meant to punish, just mm-hmm. punish people for being poor and punish people for being hungry um, and punish people for being mentally ill and addicted to drugs and anything else. Right. And yeah. doesn't have any room for actual restoration. Right. Uh, or, or even the repentance and restoration of people who, you know, are just violent, whatever, um, mm-hmm. which we see, you know, other, oh gosh, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say, if it makes sense to say other developed nations, or just as though we're included <laughs> anymore, <laughs> or just say developed <laughs> nations, but that are looking at people that, that understand that people aren't ever just lost causes or hopeless. And yeah. that we have a system that seems to think a whole bunch of people or most people are lost causes. Um, and that having a system in place that works in this world and works in the next world and has this continuity is very refreshing for those folks, I think, mm-hmm. um, because they're, you know, separating themselves from people in a whole variety of ways. Um, and I don't, if, if you let me keep talking, then I'm going to end up <laughs> telling you how this is. I think this is all connected again with you know our embrace of white supremacy too. I mean, just even the challenge of who's in, who's out. But that question is like the most important question for these folks. Um, yeah, I mean, no doubt the doctrine of hell. In my no doubt, okay, I'm gonna say no doubt. In my mind, <laughs> the doctrine of eternal conscious torment rose to the top because it gave the church a lot of power. Um, if you can threaten people with that, then they're gonna join up, and there you go. So yeah, any, I mean, the whole power dynamic definitely is involved there. And like you said, if we, if 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 we get rid of that and see God as some as a God who does not give up on others, then we can't either. Yeah. Uh, we have no justification for that. Yeah, go ahead. I guess, I mean, I'll just say maybe on the flip side of that, I do see, you know, with, with people who have been historically oppressed and marginalized, that mm-hmm. some of them have a very robust concept of hell as well because of their yearning for justice, you know, that they're yeah, never going to see in this world. Um and so I get, I get that. I absolutely get that too. But I, under, yeah. I understand that need for, for some place where the people who should have had it coming finally get it coming. And that same need in my mind is part of how it developed after the po- you know, post-exile. Mm. Yeah. Because okay. a lot of innocent suffering 
how is this just God? Because justice is connected with the people in the land. Once the land is gone and the people are, you know, scattered, then how do you conceive of justice? Um, that need, like you said, for justice is probably at least played a role in how a more robust development of the afterlife came about. Mm -hmm. So I think the takeaway, Charlotte, is you don't want to go to hell. That I feel very confident <laughs> <Me too>. about, <laughs> yes. <laughs>